I'm Caleb Standifer, one of the elders here. Um, this morning we have uh, two people with us, uh, John and Cheryl Irwin. And uh, I got to speak with Cheryl this morning, and uh, you know, it's a great that the, she's giving praise to God for how he's working in their life in a time where they don't know what's going to happen in the future, but they see God working and making things happen. So that's a praise. It's so great to see that they're trusting in him. John is, um, he just finished up four and a half years at Moore Park EV Free. He's a speaker. He's spoken over 500 times in the last 33 years at different organizations and conferences. He has some ministries, one called YouGo, one called With Hope that's um, for suicide prevention. He really has a heart for families. Uh, so, John, come bring us the message today. All right, it's good to be here this morning. You know, it is so weird. For four and a half years, I had this headset that would always be my ear, and it was like, like you know, and it would fall off, and it would crack and break. I cannot tell you. I'm standing here. I'm going, where's my headset? Wait, it's here. It's in my pocket. Where's my headset? And I'm like, if you saw me, I was like digging down my shirt. My wife goes, it's on your right here. So I, uh, I'm glad to be here today. I'm so glad to be here. We were in Prescott, not Prescott, Prescott, Arizona for a week. And storms were chasing us all the way home. I'm glad the plane got there and we got here last night. And I know I freaked poor John out because everything that could go wrong technology-wise went wrong this week. My laptop crashed on, on a week ago Friday and my iPhone uh, crashed yesterday. So he couldn't get a hold of me, no longer in service. I've skipped the country. I've been held hostage in Prescott. So um, I am really, really glad to be here today. And I know you're in this time of transition, and you've got some candidates coming um, to your church. I've been an interim senior pastor before I was at Moore Park. And um, I just want to encourage you during this time of waiting on God, because oftentimes waiting on God in a church setting isn't completely different than waiting on God for something you're praying for desperately in your family. In Luke 15, we have one of the most amazing stories about a dad who had to wait. The best way to preach through Luke 15, if I had my way, I'd be here three weeks. And the first time we'd go through it, and we'd look at it from the younger son's perspective. Then the second week, we'd go through it from the older son's perspective. And then the third week, we'd go through it from the father's perspective. Now, unfortunately, I have one week and 40 minutes. One week and 40 minutes. I could get it done in a week and 40 minutes. No, I think I have 40 minutes. But just to show you how we think about this a little bit, let me have a little fun with you here. How many of you are the firstborns? Look at all you firstborns. Now, many of you will have pens in your hand, and you're looking at this outline, and you're saying to me, he better fill in every blank. In fact, the firstborns are very excited because I've given optional homework on the back with a little table talk and a little discussion. Where are the babies of the family? We're just glad you found the room. We're glad you found the room. We're glad you're, you're here today. Where, where are the middleborns? Well, who cares about you anyway? 
by the way, <laughs> if, if you ever go to MOPS, for a long time I did these MOP, I did MOPS on Friday mornings, and I do my thing on firstborns, secondborns, thirdborns, and all the middleborns go, yeah, we don't have any pictures of just us. <laughs> There's always a, a big brother doing this, or a little brother kind of jumping in, so we love you, middleborns, even though we don't know your name. Anyway, um, by the way, you can tell that I like to laugh. Life is too hard to go through life just like sucking on a dill pickle. You know, um, this says in the scripture, doesn't it say this? The joy of the Lord is your strength. So let's be joyful today because you're going to walk out of here feeling very excited about what God's going to teach you from his word. So let's get to it. Luke chapter 15. Now, I'm not going to read through the text. You've heard this passage preached probably many numerous times. I want to highlight a few things and imagine you've already gone through it two weeks prior and now we're going to look at what the Father did right. And really as we look at the text of Luke chapter 15, it's the story of two prodigal sons, not one. We always look at the younger son as the prodigal son, but it's really the story of about two brothers who are both far from God. You know there is an analogy here in the text, the Father represents God the Father, the older son represents that self-righteous kind of Christian who was also alienated against the father. And if you remember correctly, you don't see that relationship restored by the end of this parable, do you? And then we, the famous younger brother, who is the rebellious one, who ultimately does reconcile with God. And so today we want to look at how the father responds to both of these kids. Because how he treats them is the same way God, our Heavenly Father, treats us, right? So let's look at it from that vantage point, and I want to jump right in. In your notes, and I'm, I'm someone who wants you to take notes, get a pen, get a crayon, you know, break blood, do something, but get, get your hand out there and your pen ready to go. Let's look at a father's response. What did the father do right? All right, number one, he let go of his son. He let go of his son. Look at verses 12 and 13. And a certain man had two, two sons, in verse 12, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now, you know, that would be highly unlikely. You shouldn't have done that. The dad isn't dead yet. And he's asking for his share of the inheritance now. Now, in, in, in Jewish culture, two sons, the older son would have gotten two-thirds of the estate. The younger son would have gotten one-third, but the younger son wants it now. And this is what happens. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey, went to a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. That, my friends, those two verses is an entire sermon right there to talk about this concept that he let go of his son. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm dad and I got money and my younger son wants to take off, I'm sending the FBI after him, the Family Bureau of Investigation, right? I'm going to have one of my servants tail him. Uh, but you notice the father doesn't do that. And in the same way, when you're far from God, God's not chasing after you. Now, what's popular to quote the parable of the 99 sheep and the lost sheep and all this, but in this context, God is waiting. The father is waiting because he knows that that son has to go through some things, and we'll see this phrase, come to his senses later, doesn't he? 
And so the father waits. Now, just because he's waiting and he's not chasing after his son, does that mean he doesn't love the son? Oh, no. I, I can imagine every day his son was gone. He sat on the hillside property overlooking the valley and wondering and praying and agonizing and begging, begging God that his son, his beloved son, would come home. And maybe he'd been tempted to send out that servant to keep an eye on the money, follow the money, so to speak, but he didn't. And the bottom line is some of you today have a prodigal, don't you? You see, you come here every Sunday and you put the smile on your face, but if people knew the heartache that you're experiencing because you've got one of those kids... You see, this is not an intellectual, book-written sermon for me. Because we had that prodigal. And I'll tell you more about his story in a bit. Four long, painful years, our 18-year-old son was far from God. Four years. Had to kick him out of our house. He was into drugs, all kinds of things. And I'll tell you the resolution of that glorious story a little later. And so, as I look at this now, I look at this in far different eyes. Because quite frankly, if my kids came out great and perfect, I'd be writing a book about it and abusing you with it, right? <laughs> Don't you hate that family? They got the perfect little pristine family and they all smile. And praise God, if you have kids who are all walking with the Lord, fantastic. That's just not reality for most of families. And a lot of times in churches, we have no place to go because we don't know where we can share in a safe place to be able to unload that stuff. And so the father let go of the son. Now, I got to ask you a question, just sidebar. Why did he leave? What was up with this kid? It's clear that dad has money. Not unlike the community we live in here. A Moore Park, Westlake, Agoura Hills, there's money here. Why did he leave? Let me just suppose with you, just we'll surmise. I don't know if you can fit these in your notes anywhere, but maybe it's the family. Maybe it's the competition with the older brother. Maybe that's it. Maybe it was friends. Maybe there was this peer pressure, uh, this, this idea that peer pressure is a modern invention is hooey. I think we've had that forever. And in fact, maybe friends pressured him because what righteous Jewish boy would ever walk away from his heritage. So there was something going on there. Maybe it was failure. Maybe he had poor self-image. Maybe he had to prove something that he could make it on his own. Maybe, you know, older brother's the high D achiever, and he's just kind of, where do I fit? Maybe it was frustration. Maybe he was understood, misunderstood. Maybe he was angry about something. He was a very spontaneous thing. By the way, I, if I had more time to unpack it, I do not believe this is spontaneous. He had planned this out. It wasn't like, oh, I think I'm going to leave. Maybe it was fun. Maybe he's just a party animal. You know, he just wanted to go see the world. Maybe it was because he wanted freedom. He wanted to get out on his own. Whether it was family or friends or failure, frustration, fun, freedom. We don't know why he left, but he left. And I want to ask you, when you find kids who have grown up in churches, because this is a good Jewish kid and a good family, what's going on with all of that? So I want to illustrate this for you because I think it might help us understand the text. I've asked a victim to come, I mean a volunteer to come up. His name is Robbie. And I want to illustrate for you. Let's hear it for Robbie today. Yeah. 
All right, so Robbie's going to stand on these two chairs, and let's illustrate what these chairs represent. And I do need someone uh, just to hold a chair. I need another volunteer. John's coming. This chair is representing the Word of God. It is not changing. This chair represents the world. And we're going to illustrate for you what's going on with this younger son. You see, he was raised in a Christian home, actually a Jewish home, but we'll play the example. <laughs> he doesn't have his yarmulke. So a good Jewish Christian home, right? And on Sunday, he could say all the right things and do all the right things, and everybody believes that he's a believer, and maybe he is. And quite frankly, he can put the show on. He even sings. And so that's what life is when you got both feet in the Word of God. But when you have one foot in the world and one foot in the Word, and one foot in the world and one foot, you're kind of conflicted. But he lives the rest of his life every week in the world. So he's not the angel. He's not the choir boy. In Minnesota, they say he's bad to the bone, right? And this is, by the way, the normal Christian life is you have to navigate this world of one foot in the word and one foot in the world. He's listening. It's very good. So here's the problem. As long as God's word and our culture, as long as your belief and your behavior match up, things are fine. But answer me this question. When you say one thing and you do another, what do you call that person? A hypocrite. And it, fundamentally, the younger son is a hypocrite because he said he followed Yahweh, Jehovah God. At least that's the implication from this family. But he lives a lifestyle that clearly is far from God for most of that text. Now, when your belief and your behavior starts separating, you end up with some problems, don't you? Because when your belief and your behavior don't match up, it's a problem. Now, for a while, you can play the game, can't you? You can hop over here. It's on Sunday morning and stay on Sunday morning. And we are what? There we go. And then the rest of the week, you're over here in the world and you are there you go. Parents of high school kids, these are your kids. You say, no, not my kids. Yeah, your kids. They have this struggle because they got one foot in the word. You've told them, you've taught them well but they've got one foot in the world. And the world keeps pulling them farther and farther from God. Now the problem with this is, right, you can't continue to go back and forth and you get stuck. Now when you're stuck, when you say one thing and you're doing another, how does that make you feel, Christian? Tell me. You feel bad. You feel conflicted. What else? You, f you feel guilt. What else? You feel stretched. He has an amazing grasp for the obvious. Yes. That was good. I need you in the next. Oh, we only, okay. So you've got, you got one foot in the word, and you've got one foot in the world. Now, here's two responses. You can repent, say, Lord Jesus, I need you. And that's what the younger son does eventually. But for a long time, he said, I don't need my family. I don't need God. I don't need you. God says, seriously? Seriously. And we go, and, we, and we, we shake our angry fist at God. And God says, I love you, but I, I'm not going to rescue you. And, I, and we say, I don't need you. God says, yes, you do. <laughs> and so he brings pain, <laughs> frustration, 
attention. He, he will get your attention one. Oh, Robbie, thank you. Thank you very much. As you can tell, Robbie has zero personality. And uh, I said, please get someone who can work with me. And Robbie, you are the man. All right. Thank you. And so he let go of his son. Even though his son was conflicted, he was stuck. He was far from God. What's the second thing they did? Very interesting. He didn't rescue him. Look at verses 14 to 17. And when the kid had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, began to be in need. He went and attached himself to somebody. Verse 16, longing to fill his stomach with the pods of the swine. And this is, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, everything that can go wrong with this kid goes wrong. In verse 17, he finally comes to his senses, and he realized, my father's hired people eat better than I do. Now, can you imagine how low he has sunk? He's a Jewish kid. Let me tell you, you don't have BLT sandwiches. Bacon is not the, 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 the meat of choice, right? And he's, he's eaten out of the pig slop. And so the father didn't rescue him, even though I'm sure the father knew that he had fallen on hard times. And one of the things that the father does in verse 16, even though the kid is longing to fill his heart, his stomach, we don't know what the father knows or doesn't know, but he doesn't rescue him. Parents, when your kids are far from God, uh, far from God you have to resist the temptation to rescue them. It is so hard to let them suffer the natural consequences of their decisions. When I didn't know how Johnny was going to make his rent payment, when I didn't know whether he'd stay in school, and he didn't, he dropped out of college. When I knew he was smoking pot, I wanted to rescue him from all that. I wanted to abduct him. I wanted to take him to Montana and put him on a ranch somewhere where there was like 500 cattle and no women and no drugs and no friends and nothing but hard work and blisters. We want to rescue. But when you are far from God, friends, verse 17 gives us an insight on how God looks at that. You see, when he came to his senses, do you notice that God pounded into him? Did the father say, come to your senses? Did he shake him? Uh-uh. He was away from the father. And sometimes when you're in that valley, that's when God speaks most directly and quietly to you on both ends, if you're the parent or if you're that prodigal. And just so we're clear, prodigals don't have to be 17 to 22 years old. There are 50-year-old prodigals in this room today. There are prodigals of a different kind when we look at the older brother in just a moment. And so he didn't rescue him. Now, I know the father missed the son because you see later in the text, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Do you see that there? Um, where is it there? Uh, verse 1920, all the, in there, when he was a long way off. He missed the son. I think God misses you. I know God is God. I don't, don't, I'm not doing anything crazy theologically here, but I'm just saying, I think God misses you when you're far from him. 
I think you have no idea how the, the heart of the Father grieves when we as his children go our own direction. I'm in a very interesting time in my life, by the way. In May, it became very clear to me, God's saying, you need to take your church and merge it in with the church that planted you seven and a half years ago. It's called the Bridge in Newberry Park. It needs to be one church, two campuses, and there's not a job for you there. That's what God's telling me. Now, some of you are going, doo, 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 doo. this is the twilight zone. Pastor John's gone charismatic on us, and he's now talking about some experiential thing. No, I'm not doing that. I'm just telling you, when you are in the Word and you are praying fervently, I believe God will, through his Holy Spirit, give you understanding about what your future is about. Now, this is not a good thing. I mean, you're the senior pastor, and you're sitting on my, yeah, it is a good thing, but this is not a good thing on a human level. Okay, God, great. I'm going to say, elder board, I'm going to give my job away, and I don't know what I'm going to do, but this is what's best for the church. So I, I, I had a longer quiet time the next day. Let me just make sure I heard that right. Because in this economy, kind of giving up your job isn't exactly the smartest thing to do. And you have a house payment? Anybody besides me? Just raise your hand if you have a house payment. Yeah. So that was where I first went. How to make the house payment? I'll take care of you, God says. So the bottom line is sometimes when we're waiting on God, he speaks to us. And so this, I'm waiting on God. Not, and this is where the analogy breaks down. I'm not the prodigal running away from God. I'm, wait, I'm, the, I'm waiting. God, what is it that you have for us? And so he didn't rescue him. He didn't rescue him. Thirdly, look at verse 20. He greeted him with gladness, not a guilt trip. It says, and he got up and he came to his father. This is the boy. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, this, there's some cultural things going on here. Because he hadn't treated his son with contempt and scorn and discipline on the way out, the elders would have been looking at the father to discipline this boy on his way back. Make him grovel, make him pay, punish him, and show him who's boss. He would have endured unbelievable ridicule in front of the fathers of, at the gate of the, of, the, of the town, so to speak. This father is intercepting his son before he reaches the crowd. The crowd will always be far more harsh and judgmental than our Abba Father, Heavenly Father. There's always a place for discipline. There's always a place for consequence. I'm not suggesting that it was just easy, come, easy, go. But this father knows that this young son of his has finally come to his senses, and, he's, and he runs to him. Imagine that. You're having a running to embrace you when you finally come to your senses. And I don't know what you need to come to your senses about today, but I'm suggesting that maybe some of you are wrestling with things that only in your hidden darkest places would you ever admit to. And this father, when you finally will come to your senses, will reach you with gladness, not a guilt trip. Now, I'm a dad, and it would be easy for me to think of a lot of things I could have said to this kid if he was my kid, Right? Here's five things the father didn't do. Number one, no manipulation. You cost me a bundle, kid. You owe me now. Time to pay up. No lecture. You don't see any lecture here. What went wrong? I told you so. By the way, I'm a first, you know, first, I'm a second born by eight years between my sister and I. 
So I think like a firstborn, I act like a firstborn, I'm a high D on the disc, you know, I'm a, you know, let's go after this. And I can imagine I couldn't have, could I not lecture my son? I'll tell you about what I did when he came home in a bit. No punishment. What could he have done to this kid under Mosaic Law because of his rebellion? Killed him, stoned him, right. No prying or nagging. You did what? You went with who? You, you, you what? She was where? No guilt trip. Hope you learned your lesson, son. You know, your mother and I were worried sick about you for days on end. By the way, we have no idea how long this went. This, do you have those times when you get to heaven, you have like information central? You want to ask, okay, I want to know about this one. How long was this? This is one of my questions. Now, I don't know, but if he had one-third of a wealthy man's estate, he could have made that thing last quite a while. This could have been a long run of a couple years of rebellion. We don't know. I don't think he just blew it in, you know, two weeks. Who do you run to? He ran home. He came to his senses. Who do you run to? Number four, there was a celebration, not condemnation, verses 22 and 23. But the father said to his slave, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And you know, they throw the party, put the ring on his hand, and we could unpack that. And each of those has a symbolism to what they represent. But there's a party, not punishment. There's a celebration, not condemnation. And it is lavish. The son's never going to be able to provide any kind of restitution to dad. In fact, if you note in the texture, does the son even finish his apology to his dad? Mm -mm. He doesn't even get all the words out. He counters his son's confession with kindness and restoration. He was at the end of the line, and he knew it's either forgiveness or he's done. He's facing a life-threatening situation here. Now, just one little, little tidbit of history here. The fatted calf, all right? In the end, when the, the older son gets upset, it's like, you throw a full-on steak fry for me, and you don't even do a happy meal for me and my friends, and I'm the good kid. And you throw on this big Morton steak dinner for the whole town. 500-pound veal calf would have fed about 200 people. So he's not just feeding his household. He's throwing a party for every town in my son's home. It was like he was a, a war hero coming home to be decorated. And so he's forgiven. And the feast, is the feast for the kid? Who's the feast for, do you think? When you look at it, who's the feast really for? Feast is for everybody else to remind them that the father has forgiven the son. It's a nice thing the kid got to eat, but the bottom line is, it wasn't about the son's goodness. Write this one down. It's not about the son's goodness. It's about the father's graciousness. And if you miss that in the text, you become the older brother. This is why I wish I need a whole other week on just the older brother. The older brother is self-righteous. We're going to see that in a second. We see this in number five. He didn't succumb to negativity. Who, who was getting negative? The older brother. Look at verse 24. The father said, bring all this stuff. My son was dead. Now he's alive. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring, what's going on here? Verse 27. And they said, your brother's come home. Your father's killed the fatted calf. He's received him. He's back safe and sound. And the brother goes, yeah, that's so great. My brother's back. 
Ooh, let's rewind that. I don't think exactly that's what he did, did he? Look at verse 28. But he became, say it loud, angry. I mean angry. In the King James Version, yea, thus verily, he was ticked, right? He's upset. He is seething. By the way, two Greek words for anger, thumos, orge, look it up. This is boom. He is angry. Okay? He doesn't, he doesn't succumb to negativity. The father is masterful in dealing with the young son or the older son. And that's a whole nother message. You see, the older brother is a prodigal too. He's trying to do everything by righteous works and being the good boy. And that's why I said there's some of you who are prodigals in a different shape today. I grew up in a Christian home, great family. Grew up at Bethany Baptist Church in West Covina. Our pastor was the radio pastor for the Biola Hour back in the day, Dr. Lloyd T. Anderson. Great heritage. But it'd be very easy when you're in a Christian home to say all the right things. And you're trying to earn your favor with God. And the true test, I mean, we could have seen a different response, and then it would have been that glorified, wonderful experience where you have a, actually a Christian kid who loves Jesus. But that's not the Christian kid who loves Jesus, who's the older brother. He's self-righteous, he's angry, he's vindictive, he's mad, he's holding grudges, he's upset with his brother, and he puts on this front that, hey, I'm the strong one. I'm the firm one. I'm the one who hasn't rejected your teaching daddy. And now what are you doing? You're, you're rescuing this punk? He's a punk. Punish him. Elevate me. Now, what we know from, from history is the, the older brother's not going to lose anything more. He's going to get all the estate. He'll have a bigger decision to make much later when his brother is penniless, his dad is dead, about what he's going to do for his younger brother. That's a whole other story of, and we don't know what he would have done. But according to this behavior, he doesn't like him. Number six, the, older, the, brother, the father, he reassured the older son of his love and blessing. He reassured the older son of his love and blessing. He says to his older brother, he, uh, the older son, he points over this grand estate, verse 31, everything I have is yours, everything. And then next, he kept everything in perspective. Look at verse 32. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for his brother of yours was dead. Now he's begun to live. He was lost, and now he's been found. The Father had an eternal perspective. Obviously, our Heavenly Father is eternity. He didn't respond. By the way, the Father did not respond in anger, didn't fly off the hand, excuse me, with either the older or younger son, either one. Boy, I look at my own fathering stuff. Maybe, Dad, you beat yourself up. Let me, let me just suggest something to you, Dads. When things are going great with your kids, you take way too much credit. And when things are going bad, you take way too much blame. All right? Johnny was far from God. Now, how does that play out when you're a senior pastor of a local church here, your, your son's far from God, you're reading the Timothy passages, my household not under control. He's an adult. By the way, my belief is we're talking about adults here, not we're talking about a kid who's nine who's rolling, ruling the roost in your home. But believe me, I thought about it. I talked with our elders about it. It was 
Memorial Day, 2009. I get emotional about this three years later because it's about God's love and grace and forgiveness. And my son is a living illustration of this text. You have no idea, unless you've had one, how every night you go to bed aching for God to do a miracle. And if you've been there and you've never had somebody to talk to you about that, we will be here today and we will stay and we will talk till the last person leaves. Because we know, we know how judgmental people can be towards you when your kid isn't walking with the Lord and you're checking every moment. What did I do? Have I confessed every known sin? Is there sin in Aiken's camp? What did I do wrong? You know what, Dad? You know what, Mom? You probably didn't do anything wrong. Some kids just have to be the younger son. And until they come to his senses, you can pound the Bible all day long. But it isn't your pounding that will lead them to repentance. What is it? The scripture is very clear. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O Lord. They can keep us from praying. We'd prayer walk our neighborhood nearly every day, and part of that prayer was praying for him. And I got that call that forever changed the trajectory of his spiritual life. Dad, I'm in Newport Beach. They're after me, Dad. I go, who's after you? I don't know, but they've got guns. He was hallucinating. I said, is Murphy with you? He goes, yeah, put Murphy on the phone. Murph, what's going on? He goes, he's, he's losing it. Mr. Irwin, he's losing it. He, I don't know. He, he's not right in the head. I said, keep your eye on him. We will. You know, we, we will. One thing ex-football players do is look out for each other. And this is a football guy, and so they kept an eye on him. I said, we're coming down. We drove like crazy to get to Newport Beach. He's sitting on a perch of a beach house, and by then it was two and a half, three hours later, because we just got there as soon as we could. He says, take me home, Daddy. Take me home. Now, i got to tell you something. Those are words that I was longing to hear. And until you're there, you don't understand the heart of the Father. And thankfully, I didn't give me lectures or none of that. That wasn't the time for any of that. I, I said, of course. And Cheryl drove. Well, well first, he had to, we had to find his car. <laughs> when you're high and you don't know where your car was parked, that's a problem. Kids, every kid, look him in the eye. Do not do that stuff. And you know what I mean. <laughs> we will find you. So we found his car. Cheryl drove home. And I went to the house. And we picked up some clothes. And he came and stayed with us. Now, in the movie version of this story, he has a remar remarkable, dramatic 
repentant salvation experience. The next day, he enrolls in Eternity Bible College. He's personally discipled by Francis Chan. He then gets offered a job with Franklin Graham with Samaritan's Perch, per, perch Purse, and he's preaching all over South America and leading thousands to Christ. And that happened in the first week. Well, it's like turning a battleship in a bay, friends. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. But now, looking back, three years later, unbelievable. I'm the chairman of the board for Yugo Ministries. We have 36 missionaries in Mexico. We take hundreds of kids across the border. Make a long story short, Johnny was with me in Mexico just a few weeks ago, and he's gotten into planting seeds and gardening and crazy stuff like that is non-technology driven and feeding people and people ought to have, have water. Like, sounds biblical to me. He wants to donate time to serve people who are the least, the last, and the lost. He finally graduated from college after seven years at Cal State Fullerton. Woohoo! <laughs> and now he's paying his own way. But it's a slow process. Let me tell you something. When you have a kid who comes back to the Lord, get him into the Word. You say, I know, but he doesn't like to read. Got him Bible on CDs. He's an auditory learner all through school. He hated reading. So then he hates reading the Bible because he hates reading, not because he hates the Bible. He's listened through the whole Bible, the whole New Testament, three times just in the last probably eight months. The entire New Testament three times. And I, I, he's calling me all the time, Dad, what about this? For the first time in his life, he's asking questions about the Bible that he'd been told since he was this high. But now he has a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. That is true repentance. We're driving back from Mexico. He says, Dad, I don't really want to listen to Christian music. Can we just listen to the Word? <laughs> we got through 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and we're halfway through Revelation by the time we got to your Belinda. And we'd pause it. What does that mean, Dad? You want to talk about mentoring your son? When there's a teachable moment, you just seize it. It's a much better story I can tell today than a few years ago. So let's wrap this up. My time's up. I know I'm going late. Let's wrap it up. Our response. What do we learn about mercy and forgiveness from this text? Because that's really what this is about. It's really not a story about a rebellious kid or a righteous, self-righteous older brother. It's about mercy and forgiveness. Three things. Number one, blaming God for our sin comes from a faulty worldview. Who did the younger son have to blame for his situation? Himself, right? He's the one who created such a distance between himself and his father. It's his responsibility to take his actions and own his sin and repent of it. Look at Judas and Peter. One owned their stuff, Peter, and repented. One just had regret and killed himself, Judas. What are you blaming God for today? What situation are you saying, this is all God's fault, and you're angry with God about something in your life? Own it. Maybe, it's your, maybe you don't have to own it. Maybe it's something completely outside the realm of your responsibility, and you're angry at God for some other thing that's going on. Number two, none of us deserve God's forgiveness. You go, oh, wait, wait, did I hear that right? Yeah. None of us deserve God's forgiveness. Remember, the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders are listening to this discussion. 
The Pharisee, the older son's biggest error, was in the mistaken belief that he did deserve God's favor. See, Pharisees always believe we deserve something. You should bless me. I've been faithful to you, God. I prayed. Why isn't my church growing? You know, when we left Yorba and Friends, we left a church of about 4,500 people. I went to a church in Moore Park of about 75 people. And it has a, it's had a nice trajectory of this the whole four and a half years. It's a roller coaster. I have no book to write. I did, it did not grow. There's 50 solid believers. And all of our success is anecdotal and secret. Well, not exactly secret, because if you're a guy like me, you want to tell everybody, right? But look, but the bottom line is, it's been a four and a half year journey that probably God did more in me and in my wife than anything else. You say, man, what's next? I have no idea. No idea. But I do know this. I don't deserve God's forgiveness by what I do. For by grace are you saved through faith. So don't let self-righteous people rob you of joy. Don't let your own self-righteousness cause you to begin to judge other brothers about their intentions or other sisters about what they should or shouldn't be doing, whether it's in the church or in their own family. And then thirdly, God is not a reluctant Savior. God is not a reluctant Savior. He eagerly forgives. He lavishly bestows. He ardently loves. And He never gives up on you. God is not a reluctant Savior. Amen? I'm going to close with my favorite story. Michelle's going to play while I tell this story to you. It's the story of Derek Redmond, and I'll show you the video clip of it because it really illustrates our closing point and the whole message of today. You see, it was the 1992 Barcelona Olympic Games, and young Derek Redmond was dreaming of winning a gold medal. He'd had hamstring problems all spring, and Sure enough, in the semifinal heat, he pulls up lane and he pulls his hamstring. When he's on the track, and the Olympic official says to him, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to finish the race. And so here he is, he's, he's hopping around this track in Barcelona, and with the Olympics just around the corner, this is one of those stories you'll never forget. Now the race is done, he's over, he's not on the medal round, he's not, he's not going to the finals. 64,000 people in that stadium begin to do, do see you there in the crowd? What are they doing? They're clapping. They're cheering. He's going to finish the race. You see, when you're waiting on a prodigal, you're wondering, will they ever come home? And you've got you to finish the race. Well, he's on the back stretch now, and amazingly, his father, Jim Redmond, puts his arm around his son, and young Derek collapses in a puddle of tears on his daddy's shoulders. His dreams are crashed. Here's what's funny, however. The Olympic official comes running up to Mr. Redmond and Derek and he says, hey, 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 he is in a race. You can't do this. He says, you bet I can. Get out of here. <laughs> a father and a son finish the race. And this is where God gives me this verse that we'll close with today. Philippians 1 says, says, he who began a good work in you will what? Will complete it or finish it. And so a father and a son illustrates Philippians 1, 6 for us. It's the closing story 
to the prodigal son, is it not? The son has fallen. In fact, we've all fallen, Scripture says in Romans 3.23. It says, for the wages of sin are death. And we've all been hamstrung by sin. And thank goodness we have a gracious Heavenly Father who picks us up off the track of our failed human experience and says, come on, come on. We're going to finish this. See, Christian, some of you Christians are just beating yourselves up about stuff. And I don't even know what the stuff is. But if you're like normal, you're beating yourself up about a bad marriage, a failed marriage, a divorce, a prodigal son, a lost business opportunity, a church that is without a pastor. I don't know what it is, but I know that you beat yourself up. This is a no beat up free zone today. Love, grace, forgiveness. Now I'm going to ask you to do something that you are very uncomfortable with. I, I get it, because you're a Bible church. We read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we talk the Bible, and I'm not disparaging that. I love God's Word. But what I want you to do today is to respond to God's Word. Elders, come on up. I think they've been forewarned. And today, the elders get to elder now you say, oh, great, it's one of those Billy Graham invitations. I'm already a believer. No, 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 that's not what this is about today. What's about is the body of Christ being there for each other, praying for each other about anything that's on your heart and mind today. And I don't know what that could be. Maybe it's because you have a prodigal. Maybe it's because you are the prodigal. Maybe it's something completely different, but God just is telling you, these men need to know about it. And, and they need to be able to pray for me and my family about XYZ thing. No judgment. No, oh, they went up. Oh, none of that. How about love, forgiveness, grace, mercy, kneeling down, repenting, seeking God, asking for prayer about this, that, whatever it is. Amen? And so I'm going to pray right now. And in the conclusion of this prayer, Michelle is going to transition into a song that she's written. And if you'd like to talk, be prayed for, we're all going to be up here. Sean and I will be off to the side here. And if a later date you want to connect with us, we'd be glad to connect with you. If you've got a prodigal, we got that part. We, we understand the pain. We're not out of the, the tunnel yet even. So would you join me in prayer, and, and then we'll transition, okay? Heavenly Father. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just ask today that your Holy Spirit would move among us and that there would not be this sense of shame or guilt or judgment. But Lord, that people would begin to come forward if they would just want to be prayed for about anything. But today, maybe very specifically, you're someone in this room who has a prodigal. Your heart's breaking and aching for someone in your family that's far from God. And if you are that person, would you do me the privilege of being able to just look you in the eye and just know that I'm praying for you as I see. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to come forward. Just look me in the eye and say, that's me. Okay. Anybody else? Just look me in the eye. You've got a prodigal you're, you're praying for. Anybody? Yep. Way back there. Okay. Thank you for being honest. Yep. Anybody else? All right. God bless you. And then... 
Maybe you're someone who is, uh, you're not exactly close with God. Maybe you got drugged to church here today. Maybe you're 10 or you're 60. But you know that there are some issues you've got to sort out with you and God. And again, no one's coming after you. No one's going to chase after you. But you just know that you've got some stuff to deal with. And if you're that person, would you look at me? I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you forward. I just want to know maybe you're that person. You're, you are the prodigal. It's hard to admit. Okay, cool. That's, that's okay. Anybody else? I know it's hard to kind of admit that. I'll just pray that God would bring someone into your life that you can talk to about that. Anybody else? Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. You're so gracious to us. You take the broken pieces of our life and make a beautiful mosaic. And I pray today, Lord, as we worship you and as Michelle sings and as people come forward to be prayed for, as people come just to, to pray, whether with the elders or with someone else, that, Lord, this place will be a place where grace is extended. And Lord, we're not going to value success or whatever people do or don't come. We just are offering this chance to let you work among us. And whoever comes, comes, and we'll be glad to pray with them. In Jesus' name, amen. No stress, no pressure, no guilt. This is about grace, love, and forgiveness. You want to pray? Come on and pray. Let's pray.
you didn't have to come forward to be prayed for and I see some of you are praying just with your spouses and whatnot and you know when you're going through a journey at the time you wonder if and Joan go ahead you can find your seats if you'd like and you could some of you may not know who the elders were so at least you saw their faces so <laughs> that's always helpful but as we wrap up today you got to remember that God is more interested in your direction than your perfection. You see, you were saved by grace, so let's live in that grace. You were saved by faith, so live by faith. And these bumps in the road and these detours that your kids take, parents, I know it seems like what in the world is going on. But you know that God is still sovereign. Amen? Amen? And when that's the only thing you can cling to in that sleepless night, you rest in the fact that he loves that prodigal more than you do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Can I close this? You're going to close this. We thank John for bringing the words of him. bondage breaking today. Will you rise for the benediction? <clears throat> May our Heavenly Father bless you and keep you. May His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May He lift His countenance upon you and give you peace. Thank you.